This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's amazing today that some of the strongest response that you get from people on an issue is with regard to issues surrounding how we treat animals. And yet, that's hardly ever talked about in our politics at the federal level. Hello, welcome to the Glenn Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Something I always appreciate about this audience is that you guys do not flock to the big names and, in fact, often get uh, upset at me when I have big name people on who do not answer the questions all that clearly. So I, I, I try to be careful if I'm going to have a politician on to make sure that there is uh, a real reason to have this conversation, um, something that we're, we're dealing with on the show, a theme that we're exploring that they can actually speak to, not that you just get a bunch of political talking points. And so there's been something that has been like nagging at me as I've watched Julian Castro's campaign. Castro is, of course, running for president. He was Barack Obama's secretary of housing and urban development. He was mayor of San Antonio. It's kind of a rising star Democratic politician for some years. And then when he ran for president, I didn't 100 percent see the logic of it. But as he's been rolling out his policies, it's been it's become clear to me that there is a, a thread in them, a, a kind of moral radicalism there about who gets included and protected within the construct of our politics. Who do we have moral obligation to, not only in terms of each other, but also in terms of animals, to speak to something that obviously the show is concerned with. And so I, I wanted to have this conversation with Castro because in, in part, I wanted to hear him talk more about some of these policies, to, to hear more of how he is thinking about expanding this concept of the we, but also to see if if I was right, if I was reading something into this that that wasn't there. Uh, and so this was actually, I think, a great conversation. And he showed up and, and really did think through his answers. It's it's often rare that you can hear a politician thinking about an answer when you are interviewing them in real time. Uh, they usually are are, are quite prepared. Uh, but so uh, I appreciate this one. I think that even if you don't always love the politician interviews we do here, uh, this one is going to appeal to you. So as always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Julian Castro. Secretary Castro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I want to lay my cards for this conversation on the table. As I've been watching your policies roll out, there seems to be a connecting thread that we need to expand the circle of people and even the circle of creatures that we admit we have moral commitments to. You want to decriminalize unauthorized border crossing. You want to create a class of climate refugees who can ask America for asylum. You want the homeless to be directly involved in and consulted on housing policy. You want to extend more protections to animals. Am I reading you right? Is this a campaign about expanding our moral circle? It is about that in part. And, you know, it's interesting. You're the first one to ask me that question. Um, but from the very beginning of the campaign, I have built this campaign around making sure that we shine a light on the most vulnerable communities. And uh, people will remember that my first visit after I announced was to San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, to shine a light on the failure of the Trump administration to take care of the people of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Um, but even, you know, policies like police reform, a lot of people have been afraid to touch that issue. But I've seen for many years, uh, over and over and over again, that especially young black men uh, get treated with excessive force by police. You mentioned climate refugees. Uh, this is something that we don't often, these two things we don't often connect, but immigration with this issue of the climate crisis 
and the fact that there are up to 200 million people by the year 2050 that are going to have to move from their homeland because of climate change. So, you know, we're trying to say, hey, look, um, in our politics for the last four decades, we have spoken a lot about the concerns of many people, but we focused a lot in our rhetoric on the middle class. And I know why. Um, number one, because that's the bulk of people in our country and we need to focus on the middle class. But somewhere along the way, we forgot about the poor. We forgot about the most vulnerable. And you don't hear politicians speak about the poor and the most vulnerable, the most needy anymore. I want to do that in this campaign. One thing that's interesting to me about the way you've been crafting your policy agenda is that there tends to be a very certain definition of we in American politics. So maybe we don't talk about the most vulnerable um, enough, but typically if somebody hears a politician say that, what they recognize them to mean are the most vulnerable in America, right? The most vulnerable who are already part of our we. And what's been striking to me about some of the policies you've put out is that it's not just about the poor versus the middle class, but it's also about expanding the we. Climate refugees are not generally in America's conception of we. Somebody who's, you know, in 30 years has to flee Bangladesh because of rising waters doesn't tend to be our we. Or um, I think in a very specific way, uh, immigrants who do not have authorization across our border do not tend to be thought of as part of our we. Somebody we should see ourselves of having some kind of moral relationship to. And so that that effort to expand the we beyond the, the 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 normal of the vulnerable in America to the vulnerable potentially outside of America or even outside of the the human community, that's a part of it that feels uh, radical and 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 new to me. And I'm curious where where that commitment is coming from, or if you even see the commitment in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, the way that I see it, it's that you know I'm trying to shine a light on the fact that you're right. I mean, a lot of people who we as Americans, certainly politicians when we talk, don't draw within the circle of we. At the same time, one of the things that we pointed out is that they very much have been. I mean, we talk about people who are undocumented immigrants. Uh, as all of us know, I mean, they've been a part of the United States, our economy, our culture, our way of life, living in our neighborhoods for generations and people coming from different places. We talk about protecting animals. It's amazing today that some of the strongest response that you get from people on an issue is with regard to issues surrounding how we treat animals. And yet, that's hardly ever talked about in our politics at the federal level. So, yeah, in that sense, we're trying to expand the notion of we, but we're also looking inward and saying, hey, y'all. They've been a part of it the whole time. You know, they've been a part of creating the nation and the identity of, of who we are. Perhaps we just haven't given them credit for that or recognized them, even though they have been, they have been helping to propel this community forward. And now it's time to recognize them as well as everybody else. So let's go through a few of these policies. And, and I think we should begin with immigration, which is where I think you've had a real shaping effect on the whole Democratic primary. You've um, argued for appealing Section 1325, which makes unauthorized border crossing a criminal offense. And the core of that idea seems to me to not just be about the criminal code, but about who unauthorized immigrants are and, and, and how we should think about them. So, so before we get into the policy itself, on simply a human level, how should we think about unauthorized immigrants? How should we see their relationship to us? As completely consistent with the tradition of this country as a country of strivers, of people who are aspiring for a better life, you know, consistent with our notion of people who are ready to work hard and to provide for their families. You know, I just see undocumented immigrants as being a part of the American story for generations, including this generation. And this isn't the first generation where we've had to, people have had to push back on bigotry, you know, on otherization, dehumanization. And so, you know, I, I see them as perfectly consistent with the notion of this country. And also I see them as integral to building a strong future for the country. You know, I always talk about out there on the campaign trail, the fact that um, there's a way for all of us to win, that in many ways we need undocumented immigrants, whether we want to admit it or not, 
whether people can handle the truth of that or not. Whether you're talking about economically, you're talking about making sure that the Social Security Trust Fund is strong and solvent because we have a young, healthy, vibrant workforce well into the future in a time where we had the lowest birth rate in 32 years last year. And we know that there are countries like Japan that have grappled with a population that is aged. And we have a baby boomer population that earned their Social Security that is now drawing on, on the Social Security Trust Fund at a historic rate with a diminishing workforce. Immigration is one way to make sure that all of us can win on that. So we're trying to bring folks into the fold. If there is so much benefit from undocumented immigrants, and if we, and if we owe them so much, what's the case for us as a country turning away anyone who can prove they're not a danger to the United States, anybody who just wants to come here to work? Well, of course, there's, there is a limit to what any country can do, right? Uh, I don't disagree with those who say that there is a limit. At the same time, we see countries around the world, whether in South America or in Europe, other places, that have taken on many, many more immigrants and more asylees and refugees than the United States has. So, yeah, I recognize that we do have to set limits. I'm not calling for no limits. But what I am saying is that the volume of requests to enter this country through refugee applications, asylum applications, and also the number of undocumented immigrants into the country is not a danger to this country. We've seen times in the United States when we've handled a greater volume and have been able to absorb um, people who were coming here to try and find a better life, to provide for their family. And we've seen other nations around the world today that are doing more than the United States. Um, so it's about tailoring an immigration program that meets the needs of the United States and also recognizes the value of having hardworking um, people that are going to do right for themselves and their families and their communities if they're able to have the chance of being here and of eventually becoming an American. Something that has struck me uh, in the President Trump's, I don't know if I want to call it an evolution on immigration, but the, the the slow revealing of what the policy really is, is that during the 2016 campaign, he framed it as a policy about undocumented immigrants. And then as he became president and people entered into negotiations with him and we heard more from him, it became clearer and clearer and just legit, literally true that it was a policy about cutting legal immigration, that what Donald Trump just wants is fewer immigrants of any kind in this country coming into this country. And a lot of the Democratic response has been about enforcement, about changing ICE or 1325, um, about taking down the cruelties and the policy tools that enabled the cruelties of how the Trump administration has sought to do border enforcement. But there's not really been as much of an argument from Democrats about, say, boosting legal immigration, about if if it really is true that immigrants, let's say legal here, are such a boon to America, well, maybe we should have many more of them. Maybe, maybe there should really be a counter-argument that immigration makes America strong and as such, we should more fully take advantage of that tremendous appeal we have to people all over the world who who want to be here. Um, your policy on this tends to focus a lot on the immigration enforcement side of it. So I'm curious how you think about the legal immigration side of it and the numbers side of it. Well, I think this is a case, Ezra, where the media tend to focus on that part of it, dealing with the border, dealing with undocumented immigration. I can't speak for other people's plans, although probably theirs include some of this too, but in the People First Immigration Plan that I put out in early April, we go through a whole section on how we're going to fix our broken legal immigration system. And just about every stump speech I give out there in Iowa, New Hampshire, these early other states, I, I talk about the same thing. Uh, you're right. We need to fix our broken legal immigration system, number one, to encourage people to apply legally for citizenship. And then secondly, because we can't harness the potential of a lot of folks who um, you know, end up not coming to the United States or being able to stay here and become citizens who are tremendously talented. And not only people that have, you know, higher education degrees or are already wealthy. I disagree with the Trump administration's push to only let in certain types of people who have already made it. 
but people who have family members here, we would be strengthening families. I called in my plan, for instance, identified 4.4 million family members of people who are already here that I would expedite citizenship for. Uh, I believe that more students who come here to study should be able to stay here, start a business, contribute to uh, growing job sectors. Uh, so we're talking about it, but this is a case, I think, where a lot of the focus of the media and fairly the campaigns has been on the border and on undocumented immigration in part because that's where a lot of the focus of this president and the cruelty of this president has been, even as he has made it more difficult for people to go through the front door, the legal immigration system. So I want to move to the climate question. Um, the World Bank estimates that about 140 million people will be displaced by climate change by 2050. Uh, you can look at UN estimates and other kinds of outside estimates that suggest it'll be even higher. That's a big, that's a big refugee population. Um, tell me about your idea for making a category of climate refugees, people who have a claim on asylum in America by being displaced by climate change. I believe that we need to lead again on climate change. And so, you know, I laid out a plan um, on how we're going to do that, beginning with getting back into the Paris Climate Agreement, going beyond that by making investments so that we can get to net zero carbon emissions in the United States by 2045 and lead so that at latest the world gets there by 2050. Part of our leadership, I believe, also is recognizing that people around the world are grappling with the effects of climate change already. And as you, as you pointed out, many of them are being displaced because of that. So I think that it makes sense as we take that mantle of leadership uh, to also take in refugees from around the world who have been impacted by climate change. Again, I believe that these, these people are going to be hardworking. They're going to be um, people that love this country, that are committed to helping to make it better. And right now, as you know, the statutory cap of how, we, how many people we can accept, refugees we can accept in a given year is about 110,000. At the height of, of the Obama administration, in terms of taking in refugees, we were at about 70,000. We went down to around just over 30,000 in the Trump administration, and we're going lower, I believe, this year. We need to get that number back up including with a category for climate refugees, I think that'll send a strong signal to the rest of the world that the United States is doing its part, recognizing the impact that climate change is already having. And it's going to provide great opportunity to take in people that are going to be uh, of great value to making our country even stronger. So I really appreciate you bringing in the Obama numbers there. I mean, as you say, uh, the cap at the height of the Obama years, it was 110,000, and they didn't even achieve that. You were part of the Obama administration, and that's a 110,000 to, um, and I know this is a, a, a stock versus flow issue, but 110,000 versus 140 million people is a pretty big gap. So wh what do you think was the constraint there in an administration that was, um, I think, positively oriented towards letting in refugees? And, and, and how, as president, would you think about changing it? I mean, I see the Obama administration is in a completely different league when it comes to this than the Trump administration. Of course. You know, um, but I think that as many people have written, right, in our politics and how we deal with these issues in the United States, for better or worse, it's like a pendulum. And this president has taken, on the issue of immigration, he's taken things so far in the direction of cruelty and treating people badly and shutting them out and otherizing them, that I do believe that the next few years are going to provide an opportunity to go in the other direction, including to exercise the authority that we have under the existing statute to get to that 110,000 person cap on refugees and then look at going beyond it. When you think about a country like Germany or uh, other countries around the world and how many refugees they've taken in, recognizing that that has not been without political tension in those countries uh, and some growing pains around the world. But I just believe that there's much more the United States can do um, to do its fair share of providing refuge for people who need it around the world. How about the underlying argument there about whether we are doing that because it is something we owe and whether we are doing that because, well, it may be something we owe, there's also an, an opportunity in that. I mean, if we're going to move beyond that 110,000 in a 
large-scale way. Uh, people are going to have to see letting in refugees as something that has value to us. Now, that, that's in the things you've just said to me. But if you were president and you were making this speech to the American people, how would you try to convince them that they should expand the we here? What is what is the case that you think would be effective in changing people's minds who might be just innately skeptical that we should be having people who are, have been displaced from another place, that given all the problems we have, that we have the space and the resources and the political uh, bonds to each other such that we can let them in and it will be good for us? I would talk to them about places like the Twin Cities where the Hmong community uh, has helped those Twin Cities prosper. I would talk to them about places like Houston in my home state of Texas, where refugees from around the world have come and built up one of the most diverse, successful communities in the United States. Uh, I believe that moving the needle, persuading Americans on a policy like this really starts with the stories of individual families and then from their communities that have prospered because of refugees that have come over the years and helped build up success in those communities. The entrepreneurialism of refugee communities, uh, the dedication to family, faith, uh, service in the military, all of those things that we consider bedrock of a strong America, they represent that in spades. And we can tell that story and show it over and over and over. I think that makes the best case for why we ought to bring in more, along with the, the appeal to self-interest, whether it's on making sure that, the, that we have a young, healthy, vibrant workforce so that the Social Security Fund is solvent well into the future, or pointing out the fact that our, our economy already relies on immigrants and refugees in many ways. And if we put a stop to that, really we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're hurting our own country. I appreciate the grounding in specific places here. And to take the other side of the argument for a minute, I think that one thing people legitimately worry about, something you've gestured to in your mention of Germany and others, is that we don't have the social solidarity to take in either refugees or immigrants at the levels that you and I are talking about here. And I think the counter-argument to that is, well, look around. There are places like San Antonio. I come from Orange County, California, which is a very heavy immigration po immigrant population. Um, Twin Cities is a great example. What do you think is the difference between the places that have been able to have tremendously high levels of diversity, of immigration, of refugees, and thrive, and the places or, or or the countries or the people who see that kind of influx as a threat, who don't feel that kind of migration is consistent with the solidarity and cultures that they have come to rely on? I think different things are at work there. I'll use the example of, uh, of Texas and specifically South Texas, right? Sometimes it just takes time. I mean, when you, you, you look at San Antonio today, and I would argue that for as big cities go, it's just about 1.5 million people in the city proper, one of the lar seventh largest city in the United States. All in all, people of different backgrounds actually get along very well here. And it's a diverse community. Same thing with Houston. But there was a time when that wasn't the case. In the Twin Cities, the same thing. So, you know, when I go out there to Iowa, for instance, a lot these days. Really? What are you doing in um, Iowa these days? <laughs> right. I'm, you know, I actually found good Mexican food over there, surprisingly, <laughs> uh, that and, and campaigning. Um, but for a lot of those communities, whether it's places like Storm Lake uh, or Marshalltown or a number of other communities, I think they've done it well, but it's also newer. Um, so you have places like Storm Lake that are a great example of where it can happen. I think it starts with a willingness to bridge that divide. It starts with the ability of people to get to know each other. I often analogize this to reality testing for people that have ever had a phobia. Um, one of the ways that a psychologist or psychiatrist will help people get over a phobia is uh, that 
they will reality test. If you're afraid of going in an elevator, for instance, like uh, little by little, they'll introduce you to the elevator. You'll, the first time you'll walk into the elevator, but the doors won't close. You'll just be there for a minute and then walk out. And then the next time you'll walk in and, you know, maybe the doors will close for 30 seconds and then that's it. And then eventually you work your way up to the doors actually closing and you press the button and you ride it up to the top of the building and then ride it back down. And, you know, you've conquered your fear. There needs to be an opportunity in communities for people to reality test across different cultures. That's why our civic institutions, whether it's our schools, our libraries, our arts organizations, uh, even our mass transit, I think of the T in Boston, where people of different backgrounds are able to come together and reality test and you know engage in the back and forth, um, little by little getting to know each other, our churches, all of those things, if, if you wanted to come up with a, a game plan for trying to ensure that you had uh, a smooth acceptance or a better acceptance of people who are different, that's what I would focus on. And we've seen it in some communities, even in Iowa, a place like Storm Lake that, that I've had a chance to get to a few times now, and I know people are very proud of over there. How do you think about I don't exactly want to say talking to people. I almost want to say compensating, though I don't mean in a in a financial way. Just people who feel a sense of loss as the country changes. I mean, we can talk about this in terms of migration and kind of hypothetical larger levels of migration. But I think most um, productively, it's true in just our current demographic changes. And it is partially responsible for Donald Trump. And it's a it's a growing and, and, and serious force in our politics. People who look at the way America um, is changing, the way power is shifting, and they just feel it's not the America they grew up in. I think there can be a tendency on the left to just say, hey, you're a racist, or you're behind, or you're backwards, or you're deplorable. And I'm curious how you think these people should be treated. How do they get invited into this fold? Because I think they would hear the reality testing idea, and it sounds dismissive of their of, of of their views and what they're trying to hold on to. And they feel that that America they're trying to hold on to is legitimate. It's it's their America. What is your what is what is a relationship your administration would have with with this part of the country? Well, you know, I, I came up through local politics in a nonpartisan environment. And so, you know, I came up in politics, getting out there and talking, knocking on doors, talking to people that were Democrat and Republican, folks that were conservative, people that did not agree with me. So I have a history of doing that. And like I completely understand why somebody, when they see the demographics of the country changing, why that would begin to make them feel like, hey, you know, what's going on here? And um, what does this mean for me? And what does it mean for, you know, the way of life? And the popular culture that I grew up with and and I love and really defines this country through my eyes. Like I completely understand that. And you know what? You know, now speaking as as a Latino who grew up in this country, I think the people that that they're concerned about understand that too. What I would say is that when you start talking to these immigrants, they love this country. They love the culture of it. They love the idea of it. You know, they're proud to be a part of it. They want to continue so much of it. And so um, what I would say is that you know, people recognize that something special, something worth celebrating and lifting up has been created in this country. All along the way, it's been created by people from different places. And during that time, there were the same types of tensions that we feel right now. There were the same types of concerns about whether at one time the Germans would you know, negatively change who we were as Americans. And there was the Chinese Exclusion Act. And there was Operation Wetback that sent back a whole bunch of Mexican nationals and some Mexican-American citizens to Mexico. But every time, the cooler heads and the better angels have prevailed. And because of that, the country was able to get stronger and still to continue to have a sense of identity and a culture and an aspirational kind of 
you know, value or push to this country that everybody could buy into. And, you know, that's probably a lot more um, 30,000 foot, I think, than, you know, a conversation that I would have in the living room with somebody. But I think the point is that um, that, that willingness to be a part of the country has always been there. No matter where the people that were coming here came from, and all of the worry that folks have had along the way has been for not. Because every time the new people have helped make the country greater and stronger, and that's exactly what's happening now and will happen in the future. I'm going to stop us right there for a quick break, and then we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. You have a deep background on housing, of course. And I think you're one of only two candidates in the presidential race right now to have com- a commitment to end chronic homelessness at some point. Um, and, and something I was struck by in your plan is that you say you'll ensure that individuals who are impacted by homelessness have a meaningful and a direct hand in creating the policies to address homelessness. Uh, the homeless are often excluded from political decision-making, I think on the implicit grounds that if they're good decision-makers, they wouldn't be homeless, that if they weren't asking us for something, then they would have full representation. Um, what, what in that calculus is wrong? How, how do you see our relationship to people who are homeless and their relationship to the political system they're part of? Well, I think too oftentimes the perception of the homeless is just wrong. I think most people, when they think of somebody who's homeless, first of all, they think of a guy, of a man, when the fact is that one of the fastest growing populations in terms of homeless has been families. Too many people think of somebody who's homeless and they think of somebody who's uh, an alcoholic, somebody who's mentally ill, somebody uh, who is lazy. They associate something negative with them. Now, it's true that there are a number of people who are homeless who do have an addiction issue or who may have a mental health issue. But I think the response needs to be to extend a hand to help ensure that they can get onto a productive path. And my my main point is, when I was housing secretary, I met a lot of people who up until a year before, before I met him, had been out there working in the job market with a place to live. And then something happened, whether it's part of the housing crisis at the time or some crisis in their own life, and they find, found themselves homeless. There are also a lot of invisible homeless, people that are not necessarily what, what are known as unsheltered homeless, people sleeping on the streets, but they're doubling up with a relative because they don't have their own place, or they're sleeping in their car, or they're in a shelter. So the notion of who is homeless needs to change. And that's one of the biggest problems, I think, with this administration, the Trump administration, and uh, 
HUD right now because I think they have this notion that if you're poor, if you're homeless, that there's something wrong with you, which I completely disagree with. I imagine that as housing secretary, because homelessness is such a local issue and because that then leads to such diverse local approaches and policies and partnerships to address it, you really saw a difference between the communities that were engaging the homeless in solving these problems and the communities that were offering more top-down, more technocratic processes um, that, that led to this uh, approach in the policy. So can you tell me a bit about what you saw there? What is different when you engage the homeless, when you give them a direct hand in creating policies to address homelessness versus when you have just policymakers trying to figure out the problem and crafting the solutions themselves? I mean, coming up through local government, it's very, it's the closest type of public service to the people. There's no way for you to avoid, even if you wanted to, there's no way for you to avoid hearing from the people that you represent, including people who are homeless, people who are poor. And I found just in policymaking in general that your policy, your programs that you design, the initiatives that you undertake are just a lot stronger if you get the practical realities of situations from people who are in them. Like, I'll give you a small example of that. When we're designing programs that reflect the needs of people who are homeless, some of the first things that people that I talked to who are homeless talked about was the fact that they didn't have anywhere where somebody could communicate with them about a potential opportunity. Let's say that they had their GED or they had a high school uh, diploma or even sometimes a college degree and they had gone to try and apply for a job. One practical challenge was that they no longer had clothes that were presentable to go and interview with. Another was they didn't have a place, an email, or uh, a physical address that somebody could mail them something to. And so what had broken down was the ability to actually make yourself a second chance. It's those types of things that even as we're looking at this, this 30,000 foot view and trying to design policy, it was invaluable to hear the very practical concerns about what we needed to do to meet the needs of people who are living lives in need and to try and bridge that gap because we're not the one, you know, as a policymaker, as HUD secretary or mayor of San Antonio or councilman or whoever you are, if you're not in that situation, like a lot of situation, you can't fully grasp, can't fully understand it. And that's why it's even more important that you reach out to the people who can because they're living it. One of the other pieces of this and particularly a piece around inclusion is that it can be hard for the homeless to participate because they are, their existence itself is almost rendered illegal. You, you write in your plan that you want to decriminalize homelessness and get rid of laws that discriminate against the homeless. I think a lot of people may not think that we do criminalize homelessness um, or, or even kind of realize what a law that discriminates against them would be. So can you give a, a couple of examples of the sort of laws you're looking to repeal there? Yeah, we have a number of laws in different places. Um, Cities have grappled with, for instance, laws that say uh, that you know you can't you can't stay in public spaces longer than a certain number of hours, or um, have made it impossible for people to rest their head anywhere in a public space in the community, and that has the effect of criminalizing people who are homeless, who have nowhere else to go, especially in communities where in winter, for example, the shelters get full. There's no, no more capacity. People can't just go into a shelter. Also, there are a lot of people who are homeless who don't feel safe necessarily at a shelter and you have to build up their trust level. Maybe they had a bad experience in a shelter or they've never been there. So it, that takes some time. So there is a criminalization too oftentimes that happens. I just read a couple of days ago that Austin is going through this issue right now. They passed an ordinance that essentially decriminalizes being homeless in Austin. And the article was about some of the growing pains related to that. 
you take a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York, uh, there's a growing level of unsheltered homelessness. So there's a tension that is created there where people in the city see homeless in public parks or on sidewalks or under a bridge and there's an immediacy to that there's a reaction to that how the community manages that reaction to work toward actually providing better opportunity for people who are homeless instead of just cracking down and criminalizing them that's the true test i think of a community i'm glad you brought that up in that way because you know, I come from outside L.A. and have spoken with Mayor Garcetti about the homelessness problem there. Um, I work in San Francisco, and and there's real fury in these communities about the prevalence of unsheltered homelessness. And then even if you can begin to get the funds to build shelters, to build homes, to to create more um, um, housing— a lot of people don't want those shelters in their backyard. I mean, in L.A. right now, they're going through this effort to try to put shelters places. And uh, it, it's a, it's an endless game of whack-a-mole of communities organizing to stop it from being in their place. And on some level, it's hard to blame people, right? If, you know, there, there are concerns that it could lead to, you know, people who are using more drugs in their neighborhood or it could lead to their property values being hurt. They may not be right, but they're at least reasonable. So how do you manage that question? What are the, I guess, what are the, 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 the rights or the reasonable asks of a community in, in this kind of question, too, of the people who feel they've worked hard and they've kept their life on the right track and they've got their home and they don't want to open up to, to folks who they feel haven't? I sat on the city council and then as mayor of San Antonio and every other Thursday dealt with zoning cases. And the concerns of neighborhood residents about the character of their neighborhood. Like, I totally understand. Look, I mean, if you're a homeowner, you know, you're a property owner or, or you rent somewhere, wherever you're living, who wouldn't be concerned about what's happening in the area around them? I mean, that's natural. Of course, you're going to be concerned about that. At the same time, I think that there are often misperceptions. There's a boogeyman that's created about people who are poor, people who are homeless. And the best communities are those communities that work to break down those stereotypes so that you tamp down as much as you possibly can that reflexive nimbyism and there's no way we're going to take this and the pushback. I wish that I could say that communities out there are having a lot of success with that. They're not. And you, you mentioned L.A. I mean, let's take L.A. as an example, right? To their credit, the voters of Los Angeles County uh, supported Measure Triple H a couple of years ago, which was a ballot initiative that would provide tax revenue to invest in more housing opportunity for people who are homeless. The challenge has been that they have not been able to allocate as many of those resources in part, as I understand it, because they're having problems deploying them, you know, setting up opportunity for people. So then you got to take it to the next step. And the next step is doing everything that you can to debunk those notions of what's going to happen if you have a shelter in your area of, you know, that it's not, people are not going to come in and lower property values. They're not necessarily going to come in and make your neighborhood a less safe place uh, you know, it's a two-way street too, because you got to make sure with the shelter that is there or or the housing that is there that 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 is well maintained, it's well invested in, that there's a mutual respect among the tenants there and also the neighborhood. So you know, it doesn't just go as far as saying, "Hey, don't believe the myths." There's work that constantly has to be done, but it can be done, and we've seen communities where once they get affordable housing or they get a shelter, that community is still thriving. You know, those, those people who are there are part of that community and doing fine. So I would lift up those examples from across the country and use them to show people in other places that this can be done successfully. And also, um, in my housing plan, I think at the federal level, we need to 
in some ways link federal funds to the willingness of local communities to improve their land use approach so that it's uh, more feasible to develop affordable housing where it's needed. Because otherwise, I think that um, you have city council members in a lot of communities that solely listen to the voices of never here. And as long as you do that, you're never going to be able to put the housing opportunity in place that you need. At the end of the day, just because you're homeless, just because you're poor, doesn't mean that you're not a human being. You are a human being. And it's not only people that own property in this country or people of means that count. Everybody counts. And so the government there has a responsibility to also meet the needs of people who don't have much. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments, a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You're the only candidate, to my knowledge, with an animal welfare plan. What, what led you to prioritize that? I started working on the issue of animal welfare when I was a city councilman in San Antonio in 2004. There was an article that was published in the San Antonio Express News called Death by the Pound. The article detailed how San Antonio had a rate of killing cats and dogs, euthanizing cats and dogs at about the same rate as Los Angeles, if I recall correctly. I mean, it was wildly out of proportion for the size of the city and really pointed to a big, I think, cultural issue that we had in San Antonio of people not caring enough for the safety, the welfare of their animals. So, you know, I started working on that issue. Um, there were many others who also worked on that issue. And then I became mayor in 2009. We were still working to improve the no-kill rate or the live release rate. We were able to get the live release rate. That means the percentage of cats and dogs that come into the city's animal shelter. We were able to get that up from about 10% to about 90% within the span of, I don't know, uh, five years, six years. So I saw that we could actually make progress in saving animals from being euthanized and then start to take an interest in other ways that we can prevent animal cruelty, whether it's in the agriculture industry or a number, number of other settings. That's what led me to, to put out this policy. It's just, it's something that I've had experience with that we've had success with, uh, when I went to HUD, I started asking whether there were federal funds that were appropriated, for instance, to invest in animal shelters to make sure that uh, that they could save more of the animals there. 
instead of euthanizing them. We didn't have that kind of specific funding at the time, but I sort of made a mental note in the back of my head that sometime later, perhaps, we'd propose that. Uh, and so that's what we did. So I'm going to tell a just quick story here that, that you're making me think of, but I have two dogs, um, and they're, uh, they're uh, rescues. And we wanted a pair of dogs, and we, you know, got these two adorable, somewhat poorly behaved terrier mutts. But uh, they came up to D.C., which is where we adopted them from a no from a kill shelter in North Carolina. And there, there are folks in North Carolina who would go to these shelters and look for the dogs that seemed adoptable. And um, we found out uh, when this happened that uh, our one of our dogs, Patsy, was only saved because. Calvin is really cute. So Patsy is a, a black-haired terrier. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even bother photographing her for the website because they, they photograph so badly, the, the dark dogs like that, that they never get um, adopted in that context. It's only because Patsy was laying down at the back of Calvin's crate when Calvin, who's mm. this like adorable, bright-eyed little um, blonde-haired <laughs> terrier, was picked up for adoption that she was sent up to. And so like, that's always lodged very deep in my heart. But when I talk to people who do animal rescue, um, there's a certain amount of controversy here that, you know, sometimes they'll make the argument that particularly in rural areas, there's uh, a case to be made that euthanasia is kinder than trapping animals endlessly in these shelters or letting them, turning them out and letting them starve to death in the in the wild. Um, so on the list of the many ways we mistreat animals, why why, why is this one the focus for you? Well, it's a focus, number one, because there's still 700,000 mostly cats and dogs out there on an annual basis that are euthanized. Many of them that I believe if we made the right efforts could find a loving home. Um, but, you know, the, as you know, the plan that I put out doesn't only focus on this. It does focus um, on improving the agriculture industry uh, and a number of other issues it's also, it's just for me, it was the one, it's the, the issue that I had the closest experience with. And I think also when we think about this issue politically, because substantively, I mean, I think we're obviously completely on the right side in doing this. There's always a political element, of course. Politically, this was a way to connect uh, the everyday experience that a lot, a lot of people have out there to animals. Right. Uh, and so I think people can relate to this issue of what's happening in animal shelters. Uh, many people can relate to that very, very easily. And by the way, I, I do agree with people who point out that you can't say that there is never a reason for euthanasia because there are animals that are very sick, in a lot of pain. Um, other reasons for that. However, I believe that we should aim toward no-kill status, which is defined as at least a 90% live release rate. And that's what my plan calls for. Why doesn't the, the moral logic that leads you to want to um, mostly end euthanasia lead you to want to, say, ban the killing of animals in, in factory farms? What's the difference there? I think that this is a first step. You know, in fact, one of the one of the things that I thought about before coming out with this policy, and by the way, you know, this was the policy that so far has been most mine. And by that I mean that, you know, I said immediately, hey, I want to do this policy. It wasn't on the radar screen of the policy team at all. But I had a couple of reservations about it. One reservation was that the experience that I had in San Antonio was that uh, there were hardly any issues that were more just rawly contested and got people's blood boiling on both sides of arguments than the issue of animals. And then secondly, I knew that one critique of what we would put out would be, you're not going far enough. I mean, I knew that. I could tell that. But I thought that it was important to take a strong first step with an issue that has been nowhere on the radar screen. You know, to her credit, Secretary Clinton did put out a policy in 2016. We wanted to take that 
uh, and then go above and beyond and to really make it part of the primary and hopefully have it spark more conversation than it did before. Um, but yeah, I mean, my answer would be, I, I see this as a first step, as you know, today, there are companies now that are getting better and better about creating products that, you know, taste like meat. And you know, one day I believe that more and more people are going to choose, uh, not to eat meat. I do think one day we're going to get to the point where we're not going to treat animals the way that we have been treating them. Do you eat meat? I do. Out of curiosity, why? Uh, I mean, you know, I guess I grew up that way and uh, became a habit. One of the things that I think is important in this policy, and, and I should say I'm somebody who does a lot of work on on animal suffering and feels very strongly about these things, is that I'm interested to hear that you eat meat. And I actually think it's kind of important because I think that there can be a tendency to try to combine too tightly the recognition of animal suffering as a problem and a kind of abstention from the world of like animal exploitation as a lifestyle. And it seems to me that a pretty important first step for people who care about suffering as a political cause is simply to admit animal suffering into the set of sufferings they care about. And the fact that we're all imperfect in that and that the world isn't set up for us to totally eliminate the suffering that we cause in our lives doesn't stop us on all that many things, right? The fact that some of the things I do, like, say, contribute to climate change does not stop me from living a, a relatively normal modern life. But I think in the, the animal space, sometimes there's a, a focus on an almost symbolic purity, which I, I have in my own life. I'm, um, you know, mostly vegan. Uh, but I think that ends up being limiting in terms of what it means for the po politics of animal um, welfare. Because if if the if the price of entry is to live in a way that is quite for many people difficult and uh, alienating to live, um, then the size of that coalition is necessarily constrained. No, I get what you're saying, and frankly, that is one of the things that I thought about before we put this policy out. You know, I, I thought, look. Are you going to put this policy out and are people going to take this? Some folks are going to take this in the way of, well, uh, what are you talking about? Then, you know, why don't you quit eating all meat? Would apply a certain test, which I also would understand. You know, I think you get those kinds of tests or viewpoint, not only on this issue, but a number of other issues, whether it's climate change or other things. So I understand that. Um, but I do have a passion for making sure that we take that step. And I hope what folks, let's say there are people out there that say, hey, look, you're a hypocrite because you're eating meat. But they're, they're where you are in the sense of that they want to see, or you know, people want to see progress on this issue. Uh, I kind of took a leap of faith and said, uh, look, I think that people will recognize that we're trying to make a push here and going in the right direction and starting a conversation and challenging other candidates to do the same uh, and that that will be part of getting to where people want to go, hopefully, in the end. One of the things that the policy uh, statement you put up focuses on is raising standards in factory farms. And it's not super specific in how you want to do that, but the idea that policy can make it easier to eat meat in a less cruel way um, is very, I think, important for reducing suffering. And a lot of the, I think, the, the really um, thoughtful people in the animal rights, in the animal suffering movement are, are, are focused there. So I'm curious what you see as models there. I'm curious if I can get you to be a bit more specific on what you'd like to see done to raise the standards um, around factory farms. Because that's a place where if you poll the public, they would like to see it made less cruel. And if you give them ballot initiatives, they tend to vote to see it made less cruel, including in very red states. But it doesn't always um, it doesn't always make the national agenda. So, where is a model for you there, or what are some of the things you would like to achieve there? Well, there's several things that I'd like to achieve um, to reduce cruel the cruelty that can happen in these factory farms. Uh, you know, in the plan we called for, for instance, for establishing minimum space standards for for livestock and for poultry. Um, we called for ending 
some of these efforts by states to you know institute these what are known as ag gag laws that essentially provide no transparency on how animals are being treated in these factory farms uh, and to establish an independent certification effort because one of the things that's happened i think in this administration has been that we've moved backward in terms of enforcement of basic standards so i've called for working on an independent certification standard on uh, animal welfare practices in factory farms the you know the thrust of this is that factory farms will make improvements in how animals are treated it seems to me that something that ties together a couple of the policies we've spoken about here is a view that things that people see as trade-offs um, in policy may not ultimately be trade-offs things that people that 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 some of our concerns that if we expand the groups that, that we admit into our um, conception of ourselves, that we will be losing something, that maybe that's more of a, a psychological tick than anything else, that refugees can make the country stronger, that policies to reduce homelessness are more effective, which is what people want in that space if the homeless are involved, that um, animals are part of our homes and live in our communities in a world with um, less uh, euthanasia, for instance, or less uh, suffering on factory farms is a world we would prefer to live in. That seems to me to be a, a, an important through line here. And I'm curious, just in a big picture way, politics right now seems to me to be a contest between the very zero-sum vision of Donald Trump and the Republican Party and a more positive-sum vision of, of some folks like you. And how do you get people to move out of a style of thinking? that I think is very natural, the idea that everything is fixed and everything is a trade-off, and if you win, I lose, and into an idea that things can grow, that what we see before us is not all there can be, and that sometimes those leaps of faith lead to something that, that you couldn't have expected. Like, how do you tie all this together into, uh, in, into, into a vision and into an appeal? I mean, I go back to the most basic way that we have of persuading people which is with stories, stories of success, you know, how the refugee made a difference in making their community stronger, the joy that animals in our lives bring and why we should care about them, you know, the story of a housing developer that I met in San Diego who was developing housing for homeless veterans and told me that he was a veteran and that he had been once homeless. He'd become a success and this was his way of making sure that other people like him had a second chance in life. You know, I start there and we're trying in this campaign to weave that vision together in some ways as we go along. But what I'm banking on, what I'm counting on, is that I believe even amidst all of this negativism of the Trump era, that there is a natural optimism, a wanting to accept others, a wanting to get beyond the xenophobia and the dehumanization and the keeping certain people or things out. Like, I'm going to put my faith there. And I think that eventually we're going to win. What do you say to the people who see something like this, see the policies we've discussed here and say, Donald Trump is so dangerous what he has done is so distinctive in tearing at the fabric of American society that you don't want to take a big risk right now and ask people to expand their circle way beyond where it is. You don't want to ask them to think about climate refugees and um, making it and decriminalizing border crossing. What you want to do is just play it safe and just move back to the status quo before Donald Trump. Just say it doesn't have to be like this. We don't have to scare you. We don't have to change anything too big. We're just going to go back from this thing, like this dark turn in American life. Given the danger Donald Trump represents to many people, why try to combat him with an agenda that asks much more and that potentially puts you uh, in the path of some uh, demagoguery as opposed to just trying to run it right up the middle and cleaving him into a narrower slice of the ideological space in America? Because it gives people a purpose. 
it gives people a purpose that they can believe in. It's not just trying to backfill the negative. It gives people a positive purpose that they can reach for. That's what I'm trying to do. I think that's a good place to end. So let me ask you what's always our final question, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Uh, three books. Um, let me see. Different ones. Uh, one of them, probably the, a nonfiction book that I really love. I read several years ago, probably in college, but every now and then I reread it is uh, a book called Influence uh, by Robert Cialdini. And you know, it basically covers how we persuade people, but it's written so that you don't have to be, you know, a psychology major to understand it. And it's just very, very well done. Uh, also the house on Mango street by Sandra Cisneros. Um, Sandra lived in San Antonio for a long time, but she grew up in Chicago and, and wrote that book, uh, about basically herself and growing up as a young girl in Chicago. And I especially love the ending to it about going away and coming back and making sure that other people can have the same opportunity. Uh, and then another one is uh, Roots. Um, I enjoyed reading that book when I was growing up, I think in high school. But yeah, those are three books. Secretary Julian Castro, um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you to Secretary Castro for being here, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffy Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. And as always, my email, if you've got guest suggestions, feedback, whatever, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Mm-hmm.